difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson won't be with us because, guys, this is hard to say, but she's on the run from the law. <laughs> if anyone been on the run for like four weeks. I know. If anyone, <laughs> sees, if anyone sees her, consider the romantic appeal of living on your own terms and just let her be, okay? <laughs> um, in our last episode, we discussed the classic 60s Western, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. In this one, we'll cover the Old Man and the Gun, a David Lowry film starring Robert Redford that owes a lot to the other half of our pairing and many other films from Redford's career. The Old Man and the Gun began as a 2003 New Yorker article by David Grant about the life and career of Forrest Tucker, a criminal whose arrest record dated back to his teen years, as did his escapes from whatever facilities he was placed in, including San Quentin. The film mostly covers a later chapter in Tucker's career, when he and a gang of fellow agent bandits robbed a series of banks in the Southwest. Redford plays Tucker with a twinkle in his eye, and his partners in crime are played by Danny Glover and Tom Waits. The film co-stars Casey Affleck, as all Lowry films apparently must, <laughs> as a lawman determined to take Tucker down, but who also kind of gets his antagonist's charm. Tucker's alluring also to a horse farm owner named Jewel, played by Sissy Spacek, who's drawn to him before she learns how he makes his money and stays with him after. But the film, while also charmed by Tucker, isn't blind to the consequences of the life he's chosen for himself and others. Another actor might have played Tucker and played him well, but the casting of Redford makes the film about two careers at once, Tucker's and Redford's, and his long history of playing rebels and rogues that dates back to Arthur Penn's The Chase in 1966, if not before. The California-born Redford could easily have coasted into leading man parts on his good looks alone, but he chose another path, and if this is Redford's last role, it's a lovely summation of what's made him such an appealing star. Like many of his performances, it's understated. He never seems to try too hard. He doesn't have to. He's Robert Redford. He can walk in, smile a little, say the right words, and steal a movie. Uh, Excuse me. I'd like to open up an account. Well, great. What type of account do you have in mind? This kind. This kind. You said he was armed. He had a gun. You saw it. Well, he was also sort of a gentleman. He was very polite. He seemed like a nice enough fella. Look at that. Is he smiling? Five states. 93 robberies. In two years. You think you can catch him? Yeah, I won't lie. I'd love to slap the cuffs on him myself. Let's hope I get the chance. Try another city, baby. Another town. He spent his whole life locked up, except for the times that he broke out. Somebody should have told him to quit while he was in. Well, you find something you love. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. You're never exactly where you're supposed to be, are you? Now, whenever I close the door, I think, is this the last time I'll ever have a chance to do whatever that thing was? You know what I do when the door closes? I jump out the window. <laughs> Living is a gamble, baby. Loving's much the same. Wherever. I sat down with him once and I said, surely there's an easier way to make a living. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living. All right. So uh, what did everyone think about this movie? It's our third David Lowry movie. I know. It, yeah. David Lowry and Steven Spielberg are they're, two three-peats on this show. Yeah, yeah. they're catnip to this podcast. Well, I, have a very, I have a theory about that, which is that David Lowry makes the most next picture show yeah. friendly yeah. movies <laughs> imaginable, and I think almost to his detriment to some degree. I mean, we mm. never did Eighth and Body Saints, but his films are so suggestive of the past that they feel like covers sometimes. I mean, sure, but I, I love that movie, though. That's, that's the movie that hooked me on David Lowry. I know, I know, but I mean, that one is, you know, that owes a little to Thieves Like Us. Oh, yes. And this one owes and a Terrence lot. Malick. It's basically if Terrence yeah. Malick made Thieves Like Us, it would be The Body Saints. Yeah, and then and then Pete's Dragon is like, let's do the original Pete's Dragon, but in the style of filmmaking that I liked from, the, sure. from that era. And then he's got this movie, which is an homage to Butch Cassidy in the classic Redford films of that era But as also well. sort of like the low-key 70s mm-hmm. crime movies. Sure. Yeah, well. like the era in which it's set feels sure. very... Yeah, because you know. uh, yeah, they're covers. They're good. They're, they're good, but they are covers. 
But well, if they were, if he was banned, what band would he be? <laughs> I know. Let's, we we got to figure that out. Yeah, I, I, I think cover is maybe a little ungenerous. Like it suggests that he is just like doing what's already been done before. Like it feels. Well, bit, I think uh, he's, he's Arnel Pineda to uh, to <laughs> Steve Perry. No, I'm going to say he's more like real estate. Because I, I love I love the band Real Estate, but I know I oh I, th- I thought you were just bringing in a whole oh, other no, no, metaphor no, no. that he was no, no, Real no, Estate. No, stick with the music metaphor because like I love the, I love the band Real Estate, but I also I know it's partially because he's got they got that jangly REM inspired college mm-hmm. rock guitar from the late eighties that yeah. the sound I really respond that's a, that's to. A better, you know? That's a better one. I was being, a but jerk. they're doing their own yeah. thing. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not not cover so yeah, much I, as I, yeah. Yeah, I think Lowry is more like playing in multiple sandboxes that, rather than like doing direct homage. I mean, there are elements of direct homage in this film specifically. And they're very tied up in the Redford character. But just to bring it back to like what we thought of this film, like I really loved this film mm-hmm. and I, I loved how like kind of just intimate and easygoing it felt like. I mean, it's essentially telling like this epic multi-state crime spree story, you know, cat and mouse, cops and robbers type of thing. But like when I think of this movie, I think of the scene of Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek sitting in a diner. Mm-hmm. You know, like that is the movie to me. That scene of their like first meal in a diner is probably one of my favorite scenes this year. Just the the back and forth and the, again, the chemistry between them where I think we're going to be talking, leaning on chemistry a lot in this discussion combined with the sort of the eagerness Lowry has to, to kind of highlight their faces and their age and but still the the life that is inside them it's just I found it really really compelling like outside of the narrative this the, like the emotions of this film are much more compelling to me than the narrative it's telling which is a very like fun narrative but it's it's not what I think of first and foremost with this movie. No, I, I liked it too. I mean, I, I've been a bit of a wiseacre, but I did <laughs> about it. But it's charming. It, it does it precisely what it's supposed to do, which is to be the movie equivalent of what Redford's character is doing here of, of someone who who robs you and and uh, you're kind of happy to have that experience. It reminds. There are two things I, I thought about. Two other great movies about thieves that I thought about um, when I was watching this film. One is Sam Fuller's line about pickpockets, how they're not like criminals, they're artists. That was one line that stuck out for me. And the other bit was uh, one of the exchanges in the classic film Trouble in Paradise, uh, which is a film about two pickpockets and thieves who fall in love. And um, and that there's a scene where they, they have a conversation while also quietly robbing each other blind, taking each other's uh, wallets and whatnot. And it's it felt like a small tickle or something when when you took that uh, the wallet out of my pocket or something like that. I mean, I'm completely mangling the quote, but it has that, it has that <laughs> the, quality. The, the Lubitsch touch right here. The Lubitsch, right, the Lubitsch <laughs> touch, but it has that quality to it of just like, you know, of course, we're going to forgive this guy any of his trespasses because he's so winning. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he's doing, he, if it's possible to rob banks for the right reasons, he's doing that. The reason he's robbing banks is because he loves it. And like I think for Lowry and Redford alike, like based on interviews I've read with them for this movie, like they both see Forrest and what he does as sort of like an allegory for being an artist. He's not necessarily like making a lot of money. He's not rolling in cash as a result of what he's doing. And, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs, I guess you could say to his career. And he doesn't need to be doing arguably shouldn't be doing it the age he's doing it but he loves it and he's good at it and he like he can't do anything else and i think for like i said lowry and redford they both connect to that through their own lens of making movies he's Um, such a people person too i mean you know those interactions that he does have with the people he he robs uh the real conversations i mean they're almost like those you're doing great yeah right exactly you're doing great and i mean i think he's kind of it's sort of a pleasure for him to get to know the person a little bit and Mm -hmm. to have a little bit of an exchange that that isn't fraught with the type of terror that you would expect from an armed robbery you don't get the sense he's like screwing with them or like necessarily taking delight you know i mean he's not he doesn't feel bad that they are scared or upset you know but he is not sadistic about what he is doing and to yeah, these people it's right there in a the title i mean yeah. he, he's got a gun there's a threat of violence yeah. that hangs i mean this is you know but it's, a, it's just a threat it's right. just a threat, just a threat. <laughs> and I, I don't think he'd ever act on it but you know it's it, these people don't know that i mean it's we'll get to it with connections too but it, it, these are not people who are 
not armed, <laughs> you know. Uh, anyway, just still, I give him all my money. You know, I, I, it's fine. And apparently, he did at, at some point collect, you know, over the course of his career, like four million dollars. So there was money <laughs> there for sure. The real guy did. The real guy, yeah, yeah. yeah not necessarily the. This is. Uh, but but presumably, like every time he was caught and went to jail, he sure. like started back at zero. Unless he, I don't know, I, squirreled it away. Yeah, I, I I have had the New Yorker article on which this is based open for a couple days now and have not really gotten a, around to ca- reading it. It's a cash maybe, business. It, yeah. it can be cash can be stowed and buried. And we do see a little bit of that in in the movie of him kind of tucking away his money, but it's never really returned to because, again, the money is not the point, I I think, for either the character or the film. If it weren't more the point, we'd see him using it more. He'd have more nice things or he'd have a, a place to live right i mean or at least some he'd you know it's, it's, it's sissy spacex character who has uh you know a home well and she's the one who compels him to actually spend the money he makes i love i love the scene with the bracelet you mm. know where he where he like kind of nudges her into walking out with the bracelet and you know she kind of thinks about it and and should i do this and then she just kind of gives him a look like no we're not doing this and like <laughs> takes him back and makes him pay for it which i really really love the relationship between those two characters in this movie it's definitely the the high point of a, a movie for me that is you know a, i hold it in high esteem overall but i yeah, really like them she's so great i mean we, we're gonna talk oh, about yeah. Redford some more but but basic is so great the supporting cast is so good i mean glover and and, and Tom Waits. Tom Waits. Tom he Waits has that great so little great. The, the why I hate Christmas. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like, it's like mm, the perfect Tom Waits <laughs> monologue. And uh, Affleck's <laughs> and Redford's big scene together and in the, in the ba- you know, on their way to the yeah. bathroom hallway is fantastic too. I mean, they're yeah. well cast film, but SpaceX's really having a year between this and Castle Rock. She's having a pretty good run. In both cases with Redford and SpaceX, they're, they're veterans. They just, mm-hmm. they just mm-hmm. occupy the, that space on, on screen. They're so charming with each other they react to each other in a way that perhaps younger actors don't where that where they just they feel like you feel like they're listening to each other it's so easy with the two of them just just as it is i guess we'll discuss later with redford and newman it's just like there's something so unpracticed and, and natural and and also you know that scene in the the diner which i would agree is really one of the highlights of the movie that sizing up that he does of her of just mm-hmm. like you can see him edging toward telling her everything telling her what he does and it involves getting to a point where he feels like she's not going to freak out about it mm-hmm. and even that that she might for a while think he's being absurd and ridiculous and joking about it and uh, uh i love that I, yeah. I, I, you completely buy that everything about that scene that she is going to listen to these revelations and kind of buy into it i feel a little cheated since their first film together uh, yeah, all, yeah. We could have had years of them working together. <laughs> yeah, and I mean to uh, again connect it to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid a, a little early. Like the friendship between uh, Redford and Newman on that film is like so legendary. But they hadn't worked together before then either. You know, like that was the beginning of their relationship and the beginning of their on-screen relationship. Just like this is the beginning of Redford and Spacek's uh, on-screen relationship. I, I don't know what sort of interactions, if any, they've had outside of movies but uh it's sort of lovely to realize that this very lived in seeming relationship is like existing wholly within their performances in this movie it's not drawing on some sort of history that we all know you know it's it's all right there in the performances you can see in the way these characters have been conceived too about how complementary this relationship is about how each of them gets something out of the other that was missing in their own life that redford's character has a home to return to and has some level of stability and you know companionship that was missing before and you know spacek obviously also with companionship but a little bit of danger and, and adventure and th- you know taking her outside of her far outside of her ex- experience and, uh, and interestingly he tries to also give her like financial freedom you know like there's that whole thing with him trying to buy her mortgage but not being able to do it without telling her or without bringing her in to take part in it and there wasn't really like a a resolution or payoff to that I, i don't think outside of that scene but i think that's okay because it's just like sort of an illustration of this like uh unbridgeable divide i guess or or this thing that is between them that same same with the kind of the bracelet scene like there's a certain like barrier that they can't cross but the the barriers they can cross in their relationship still 
adds up to something like rewarding and worthwhile for both of them. Here's a fun fact about this movie. So it's set mostly in Texas, but shot mostly in Ohio. And there's a scene where they're staking out a bank. This is maybe just fun to me. Um, the scene where they're staking out a bank, and, and it's like I'm not sure where they shot this. It's just a really good job of a, of a city that stuck in in the early '80s, and it looks vaguely familiar. And then I realized they filmed it in my hometown of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love the idea of Tom Waits and Danny Glover and Robert Redford all looking down on downtown Dayton. Uh, but uh, uh, that's that's the that's most boring. the most modern of cities. The most modern, but it's coming back. We're uh, we're turning it around. Yeah, they're probably though probably. Solidly, some aspects of the '80s that have just stayed and not oh, evolved sure. there for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. You could make it make it work. I mean, the time period is pretty important to this movie, I think, and specifically to its theme of freedom or being able to live outside certain bounds of society. And like, it takes place again, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, like kind of at the end of an era, like before the internet and you know all of our mobile devices just like made the whole world a lot smaller and made it a lot harder to live under the radar you know and also change the way that criminals are pursued and found as as well you know and like this is a a story not just a narrative but a story that only really works in a transitional period like this before you have those just changes in how we communicate and relate and live our lives in in the world you know within the film itself it's it's a it's a story that's sort of you know made for that like and and a news of the weird part of the local news which, yeah. which, which becomes fodder for that too that's kind of how it travels around the over the hill game yeah. gang they would be a, a viral phenomenon <laughs> today you know but they're just uh and another thing on the on the local news yeah the film does a pretty good job of showing you how difficult an effort it would be to do the coordination necessary to bring someone like this to justice uh, to drag files from from yeah. all across the country uh, in order to establish a pattern and try to be- anticipate what he's going to do next I and mean, that's that's not easy work uh, at least it wasn't yeah, i think it's it's probably it's not easy work now but it's surely surely much easier than it, that it would have been then yeah. i mean there, there's just like kind of an analog vibe to the whole movie and it, it was sh- shot on 16 16, 16 yeah. millimeter but but like just within the movie itself like sort of the detective work or, or, or like the technology we see used like it's all very like like there's that thing with the rewinding and fast forwarding of the tape and like can't can't quite get the the exact frame you need and there's like all this kind of fiddling with the machine and then there's like the fiddling with the recorder when he's talking to elizabeth moss's character and there's just all, right. all this very like sort of like tactile textural stuff around the analog technology in this film that i think is just like kind of of a piece with the feel of of the movie. I'm, a, I'm a, always on board with that sort of fetishization, as you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> as soon we, as I said analog, because Scott's eyes just lit up. <laughs> How do we feel about the ending? Because it is kind of an upbeat ending in its own way, but I also, he's giving up stuff. He's giving up the woman, the, like the best woman you can have in his life, I think. And, and I think the Elizabeth Moss, it's a fairly late in the film when we, we meet the daughter he has never cared to know. And this is, he doesn't really disrupt the, the fun spirit of the film, but I think it also, you know, like, like in Butch Cassie, not to get to comparisons mm-hmm. too soon, but it is, it is a, a uh, minor chord sounding yeah. in the middle of all this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's got that undercurrent of melancholy that's very strongly tied, I think, to Butch Cassidy, which is a stated inspiration for this film. Right. Like, I mean, Lowry went into this with Redford in mind specifically because of that film and the sting and the character he played there. So. It has an opening card that this this <laughs> true is mostly a real story or something or whatever yeah. it is, some sort of rewording yeah, of... Yeah, of... it's a very clear echo. And I think we do need to understand that there are consequences to his way of life real real human consequences because i think mm-hmm. you could make this movie and not feel that at all you know um then uh, it just is a news of the weird item right yeah. I mean, the, the fact that he, the people don't get hurt i mean i you know i was thinking that when he was during the the film's one big car chase thinking like hmm you know this goes like a lot of car chases go if you could have uh car crashes and pedestrians potentially getting hit and you know, a lot of things that he by nature would be disturbed by and not, I mean, he, he's in it for, for fun. <laughs> he's in it for sport and, and it's something he enjoys doing. But when he, when uh, there are real people who might suffer as a result of that, that way would weigh on his conscience and also weigh on the film's depiction of him as, as someone who uh, who's able to do this lightly and somebody who can root for. 
Yeah, and I think that's why the relationship between Forrest and Jewel is so important to this movie, because you have to understand that what he's sacrificing is that emotional connection that they have, and by extension, all the emotional human connections he had beforehand you know his his daughter like you said the daughter he never knew and whoever else he you know met in the interim between his 13 escapes from from prison you know and like he has some connections that extend between those uh stints in prison like his cohorts and the over the hill gang are you know apparently cronies from way back but for the most part it seems like he just kind of you know, he he lives, he really, really lives in these breaks between incarceration. And that's when he like experiences freedom, you know, like, again, to kind of go back to the theme of of being free and outside the bonds of society, you know, jail is the literalization of that. And we're seeing him in the time in his life when he is not bound by that, literally or figuratively. We're already kind of edging into uh, connections, so let's let's just take a quick break here. We'll be right back after that break to talk about the connections between Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the old man and the gun. Oh, Greg, don't cry. What are you crying for? It's just my first day. <laughs> well, there's always a first time for everything, isn't there? Chin up. Doing a great job. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about the things they have in common. Well, we can start with the obvious, which is Robert Redford at different phases of his career, though. Oh, I what thought you were going to say the title. I didn't realize until you put them together that, like, oh, these titles actually is. follow the same convention as well. That's true. That's true. I think he plays the old man, though. And, yeah. And, and, yeah. <laughs> he goes one. from the kid to the old man. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. Well, well, my, you know what? It's the most obvious possible parallel, and I just now noticed it. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't either. I, that, was, that was pretty good. Uh, All right. One connection. We can check off the list. Yeah. But Robert Redford, different phases in his career, but still, I think, very much the same movie star mm-hmm. in many, many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, it helps that he's aged beautifully into <laughs> this this just really striking um, older person. But, you know, he's still got that glint and he's still just got, he can do so much with just a little bit. I mean, it's, there's a movie star thing and he's got, and he's got it. Yeah, though, I mean, the, the risk with him is he could be boring. I, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, the, there have been films where he's done that and it hasn't felt like a very strong, a strong enough presence or or you feel like there's, there's. What are you, um, what are you, what are you thinking of? What, what comes to mind? Um, boring Redford. Boring Redford. Well, um, I almost think of him more, maybe I'm thinking much more of his directorial yeah. uh, I, career. I, but. I was, I was I was about to say, like, maybe he tends to do better when he is playing off another strong performance as he is in both of these films. But then I think of All is Lost, which is yeah. all him and only him. And I think that is an, an incredible performance as, as well. So, you know, shut my mouth. But yeah. <laughs> it's it like an, an unfinished life. I mean, that's just a boring movie. Though. So oh, you, you don't what, like what All you... is Lost? I love it. Uh, no, 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 oh. no. An unfinished oh, life. Oh, no, oh, I love oh, it. Oh, 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 okay. All is Lost is phenomenal. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking more maybe maybe something in, like a decent proposal, for, for example, uh, as being not a particularly exciting uh Robert Redford performance but um it's so naughty <laughs> naughty premise but got people talking you know I I, I should I, I quibble too much he's he's he is quite, it's a pretty good filmography he's quite good he just, and I think he's like one of those actors who understands what his range is what he's good at and then he plays to it I, I, he's not somebody who's gonna put on an accent or try to push himself too much and I think I think on the other side end of things filmmakers realize what they're getting with Robert Redford and and the good ones like David Lowry um, can get something really great out of out of out of him um, did you see our souls at night no I didn't either I wonder if it's any I should catch up with that at some point no I didn't but um, but but it's nice to see him in this role in in, in old man of the gun and in all, all is lost which is just like the perfect minimalist performance for a minimalist f- film um, he's just he doesn't need to improve anybody he's been doing this for a while he has that movie star confidence and knows that he doesn't have to do a lot to give the impression that he needs to give um, and, and give the movie what it needs but but it's it's notable that that as evidenced by this connection is not because of his age or because he does have you know like he had that same confidence in butch cassidy and the sundance kid when yeah. he was you know just a, a little baby movie star you know it's, it's just it's part of maybe it's the california thing i don't know but it's like 
or maybe it's just you know the confidence that comes with being an incredibly good looking human <laughs> being but you yeah know, it was always there i want another thing that united states movies is their attitude toward crime which i would say is basically the same i mean i think it's basically these are people who live outside the law because it's the only way they know how to be free you know and, and that's i think that's true of both of them and i think it's also the downside of that it's also becomes a compulsion both this character and, and the old man and the gun and the sundance kid are, are people who stick at it a little too long i mean it's a less tragic ending here but there is definitely losses associated with his persistence. In Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, like the big loss of, of life or the, the violence happens like when they go straight, you know, like Butch makes his first kill when they've gone straight and they're, you know, doing this payroll guarding job, you know, and like that's a kind of beautiful moment of, of irony. But I think it also kind of speaks to the vein of crime that uh, is being pursued in both of, of these movies. And like, I wouldn't quite call them victimless crime. But, but they're more targeted at institutions that can mm-hmm. presumably absorb the, the the loss in a way that that individuals can't, whether like monetary or or physical <laughs> loss. So I think, like in terms of situating both these stories in the realm of robbery and specifically robbery of banks and or railroads, you know, that have these big institutions behind them, it's sort of lessens the human impact of their crime and makes it a little easier, I think, to sort of find the fun in what they're doing without having to dwell on the harm they cause. So I mean, that kind of brings us to another thing we're going to talk about, which is about the whole thing of, of going straight, which seems to be an impossibility for his characters in, in both these movies. It's not really anything he wants to do at any point. I mean, this is what he's chosen to do. And so uh, so it's it's both hard and undesirable, really. In Butch Cassidy, it's not Sundance's idea. It, like, Butch is the one who kind of points them in this direction. And Forrest is sort of forced into this brief period of being a law-abiding citizen that he he clearly hates and is visibly wilting well, he <laughs> during, also, he's also know? being forced to serve the time too right yeah. when he when uh, you know that's what condition oh, that, yeah, that's interesting like it, i didn't even like think of the the little bit we see of him actually in jail because like in terms of thinking about him going straight like i just think so much about those scenes we get of him like living with jewel and sort of shuffling around the house and, and just being visibly stifled but you're right we also do see him in jail and it just like makes clear that that is just sort of an extension of his time in prison it's just like another sort of shackling just without actually being in jail <laughs> yeah i mean i really like that whole the scene where he he gets he gets put in jail and, and she visits him and he shows her the the list of of all yeah. these breakouts that he's done in the past, and you get that kind of Rushmore montage later of all of the various ways he busted out of jail in the past, and that- including clips from the chase, and I think Brubaker yeah. as well. Yeah, those with younger yeah. Robert Redford. Yeah, it, seamless. Real quick, speaking of, what is the movie that we see Forrest and Jewel watching? It's Tulane Blacktop, which okay, would definitely be playing at a small town Texas theater <laughs> in, in, in the late in the early nineties. But uh, it's the perfect, you know, that scene is perfect. That's like if I don't, if I don't. Get grounded soon. I'm going to go into orbit. It's just sort of the perfect for him, where yeah. his head was at the time. I just, yeah, I, I, I really liked to, to see filmmakers just go ahead and just take the latitude and yeah. just say they're watching. Too, of course, they're watching Too Late Blacktop. <laughs> I re- watched an episode recently of The Deuce where characters just sitting there watching and memorizing a monologue from Blue, Blue Collar, the <laughs> the Paul Schrader film Blue Collar. It's like, of course, you know, why not? Why not? Why not? That film was didn't was not a hit, but sure, <laughs> I get it. Is that Sunday's episode. That Sunday's episode. Okay, well, well, it's not Sunday. I mean, for the for the listeners, they're it's all Sunday's be, no, I think it's, it's one one you've seen. I haven't. It's, it's, so. it's one that you will that that people will have seen uh, if they watch the show. You're an extra well show. If you're not watching the Deuce, watch the Deuce. That's pretty good. Yeah, like the uh, but I, I like I give them that. I'm happy to give them that latitude. Yeah. But going back to that uh, scene in the in the jail where he gives that list to Jewel, I forget exactly how she reacts, but she basically kind of compels him, like, or is like, maybe you don't do that this time, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's just it's like an echo of that bracelet scene again, like kind of her reining in his instincts, and uh, again, it kind of maybe being this 
baseline difference between them that for all the the lovely connection they have, like ultimately it can't be resolved. We could talk about the female allies in, <laughs> in these films. Um, I think uh, Etta is much more of a, and a better <laughs> than, yeah. than, than Jewel yeah. is, although they're both complicit in their own way. Yeah, and I think they both kind of find it's somewhat charming what the, what, what the men in their lives do. I mean, obviously they are charming men, but like Jewel is not going to, as you say, abet Forrest's crimes, but she, I think is also a little like intrigued by by them for sure until she actually finds the gun in, in, in his glove compartment, which I think is a moment for her where it kind of crystallizes that, you know, this is, perhaps a little more real than she had been, you know, making it out to be in her head or, or the Ed less romantic. That is a whole lot more engaged in the criminality. Yeah. I mean, she's out there firing a pistol herself at one point once they get to Bolivia. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a much different relationship, but I do, I do like in the old man in the gun, I do like those moments where Forrest bends to her will a little bit, the bracelet scene in the jail where it's like she, it does get to be too much for her. It does cross a line and he's willing to go against his instinct to commit a crime or to try to plot a prison escape and, and give something back to her and be influenced by that relationship and rather than follow his renegade instinct. I mean, he is until he isn't. You know, he's, he's, he's willing until he isn't. That's you, true. You know, and, he tries. Yeah, and I, that's, I think that just kind of goes back to the, the idea of there just being this line of melancholy going through this film as, as with Butch casting the Sundance Kid like the, for all the fun and freedom represented in his lifestyle it, it comes at a cost and kind of the centerpiece emotional connection of the movie is is that cost it's the thing that he gives up and it's sad <laughs> yeah so we learn a lot about how bank robberies happen you know, mm-hmm. watching the, in, in the old west and, and in the early 80s and then mm-hmm. this I, I kind of left thinking uh, old man, again, like, I could probably do that. Probably, <laughs> maybe not now. But you, you could, you could yeah. maybe in 1981. Yeah, I yeah. think I, I learned enough from that movie to know how to do it then. Do, um, do, do you think you can uh, pull off the the swagger and confidence of no. a of a forest no, tiger I, walking into a bank? Because, like, I mean, that is the mechanic, his mechanics of of robbery. It's just being very confident and and charming and choosing the right moment yeah i, mean, I think the timing is as as he an sits ad, down as i mean it's like i think he's like savoring the experience he gets yeah. in the bank he sits down he scopes things out he he's very casual about how he goes up to the teller he's very casual about how he leaves he's not somebody who's going to run or could run or at pe- that point or, or, sure yeah. but i mean <laughs> at, at any point i mean he's not the type to squeal away at, at any great speed i mean i think he just uh, you know i think this is it's something he enjoys doing and you know and like a good meal you just want to get everything you can out of it and uh whereas with butch Cassidy and sundance kid it's it's necessarily a much more of a smash and grab job that they're trying to do though they do it with you know as personally as possible i absolutely love the bits, the bits with the train robbery where they're going back and forth with the company man who's just, who's really, you know, <laughs> trying to be a good employee and really has to kind of put, you know, to stand in their way. And he, he does way more than he should do. And I, I love that they both, that they tease him for that. And, and ultimately, well, they have to, they, they end up hurting him. But uh, all that stuff is really fun. I, I you know, I confess that I, that is the part of Butch Cassidy that I really love the most is just seeing the, the, the two of them do jobs well and when we get to bolivia i mean you uh, we mentioned the etta teaching them spanish and and it's, it's really kind of you know to put it in the context of the mechanics of, ro- of robbery like they don't have their most valuable tool which is their words <laughs> you, you know like that sort of um amiability you know that they have when they're robbing the the train you know like they don't have that uh, when they're uh, speaking a language they only have the most tenuous grasp of and the like they eventually get the hang of it you know as, as the montage progresses but those early robberies in Bolivia like have a much more like chaotic uncontrolled vibe to them because they don't have the control of language that gives them the control of the situation when I say them, I, I more mean Butch uh, Sundance Kid doesn't do a whole lot of talking in the robberies but yeah, they don't have that advantage, I guess, uh, that they have in America. And just real quick, I do want to note that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid opens with that great little scene of 
butch uh, kind of casing a bank and looking and, and being like, why they changed a beautiful old bank that was here? It's because it, it, it was too easy to rob, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and that probably ties into the whole like end of an era aspect of that movie as well. But uh, also kind of feels a little bit of an like an echo of what I was saying about Old Man and the Gun being set in sort of the end of the era in which you could rob a bank in the in the manner that he does you know like banks uh in the old west were uh, were were evolving past a point where butch could rob them as he had had grown accustomed to doing so had to go to bolivia to do it i guess yeah but still you know better than now and and old man on the gun still not quite enough technology to stop this old man doing what he wants to do he just has to put on the fake mustache and <laughs> and just gesture to his waistband it's, it's unclear to me if he ever actually take no, I, don't, I don't know if he ever even takes the gun into the bank or if he just keeps it in the car because like we had there's that one little interaction between casey affleck and the bank manager after he got robbed and he was like did you see the gun mm. and the guy's like i like he's unsure you know he, he's like well he like he gestured and I, I think I saw it, but, but like there, so, but it, it's very clear that whether or not there was a gun, he wasn't like brandishing it in a threatening way. The implication of a gun was enough. Well, with that, we can wind things down with some gun talk from our resident <laughs> gun expert, Genevieve Kasky. Oh, no, I don't, no, I don't want, I don't want to be that. <laughs> um, so Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is available to stream on all the usual services. You watched on Amazon Prime, right? Uh, I actually watched it on HBO Go, which Scott informs mm. me was a, a bad choice. Well, they, cro- they blow it up to one eight. Oh, no. For, to, to the, yeah. Oh, you didn't watch it at all. Yeah. You got to yeah. watch it again. I know. Oh, I but know. but I, in fact, it might be different on Amazon Prime. Though. Amazon Prime usually does a better job. Yeah, they don't. They don't. Unless it's uh, like a. Sometimes I've seen like old obscure stuff that's basically just they ported over a VHS copy. But uh, but generally speaking, they they keep the aspect. Ratio. So I went I, myself. I went to because I, I, I that was one I didn't have in my uh, DVD collection. So I, I went on to iTunes and the rent, the difference between the rental fee and the fee to purchase is a dollar. So I, I purchased the film for five bucks, and it's got tons of extras on it, and you know certainly worth picking up. If, you know, if, you, if you like things digitally, I don't, you know, digital ownership. There's a, that's a whole other can of worms. But I'm betting that Keith watched it on, on, on a nice Blu-ray that he yeah, has. I think, you know what else has tons of extras? The Blu-ray. Actually, it's one of those things where it's like there's a price tag on it from the used record store where I bought it. It's like for seven bucks or whatever. And it's just sort of like one of those things where like. I'll, I'll need that someday. And you know what? Someday came this week. We really covered the spectrum of viewing uh, experiences for Butch Cassidy and yeah. the Sundance Kid. Projected, projected, which I've never seen, which yeah. I'd love to Keith see someday. Won. Keith won this yeah, round. Yeah, and I lost. I, I, I watched yeah. the, the worst. I'm sorry. But I still liked it. You know what? It, even cropped. Yeah. It's a good film. It is fun. <laughs> Speaking it is of fun. projected films, you can see <laughs> The Old Man and the Gun at a theater near you. Not in 16, though. What's that? You can't see in 16 millimeter, though. That would be nice if you could see it on film. (laughs) Well, you know, you take what you can get. It's a lovely conversion. Um, Very, very filmic. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve? What in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, what's been good for me lately is a film called Bad Times at the El Royale, which is Drew Goddard's first feature as both writer and director since Cabin in the Woods. Uh, I love that film. I think we we all oh, yeah. love that film yeah. here. So uh, this was definitely one of my most anticipated movies of the fall. Well, I don't think it quite raises to the same level as Cabin in the Woods. There's a lot in this movie that's just really unique and special and definitely worth seeing in a theater. Is it the Cabin in the Woods for like, Tarantino-esque uh, <laughs> movies or... That's definitely one way to think of it, yeah. But it is probably a movie where like the less you know going in, the better. And that is not so much having to do with narrative twists as just like it's a really kind of fun and surprising viewing experience that I think if you take a frame of reference like Tarantino into it, it's going to maybe take away 
some of the surprise, which maybe I've just done. <laughs> but also, like, the, you probably get some of that from the trailer as well. So uh, if you haven't seen the trailer, avoid it and maybe just go see uh, the movie. But I will kind of give you the broad strokes of what happens. Uh, it's about seven strangers who are trapped in this highly stylized mid-century hotel that straddles the state line between Nevada and California. And based on that setup and based on uh, Goddard's history working on TV's Lost in the Good Place, I don't think it's a spoiler to tell you that this is all an extended purgatory metaphor. And it it's very interesting when viewed through that lens. Chief among the ensemble are Jeff Bridges, who's always great, of course, uh, John Hamm, Dakota Johnson, Chris Hemsworth, and I particularly want to highlight Cynthia Erivo, uh, who is a Tony Award-winning musical theater actress who gets a lot of opportunity here to show off her skills. Uh, there's a lot to recommend this film, from the twist-filled story to its smart use of music. Keith, you're going to love the music in this movie, mm. um, to the really just captivating, delightful production design. Uh, but as a fan of Arivo, I was particularly happy to see her get such a central and well-realized role here. And I hope that this is the start of a breakout career in Hollywood for her. Uh, she also has a starring role in Steve McQueen's uh, Upcoming Widows, mm. uh, which I am looking fa- very yeah. forward to seeing. Have you seen it it's yet? fantastic, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, she's quite good. I mean, it, yeah, everyone is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing her in, in that as well. But going back to Bad Times at the El Royale, just in all, this film is kind of a blast from beginning to end. It's full of like surprises and just big cinematic bombast by the time you hear this it will have been out in theaters for a couple of weeks uh, and i hope that if you haven't already seen it you will go to the theater and treat yourself to bad times at the el royale guys i, I really want you to I'm see a, this no i'm, I'm very <laughs> yep. excited and, and we'll see it at the first opportunity for yeah. sure maybe it's, we'll go together yeah oh well that'd be something yeah, yeah. we've we've done that yeah <laughs> Fahrenheit we eleven nine wasn't that great? <laughs> you're not you're not going to Mexico or anything, are you? I'm going to Mexico. <laughs> yes, sometimes school raffles pay off. <laughs> you know, you're like the third friend of ours that like hit the jackpot at school raffles. Yeah, it's big time. Yeah. But I mean, it's a big bet. You're making a big bet. But our thing was like, you know, we we have to support the school. We got to get, yeah. get a solid check in there, and then and then boom, Mexico. You draw your name on a hat, and you go to Mexico. All right. All right. Well, Scott, before you leave, what, what give us a film <laughs> well, recommendation? Before, I, before, before leaving, I, I went on a on a binge, and I, I've seen so much that I've liked lately that I, I can't do it. All. I'm going to do two things, but before that, I'm going to preface that by saying I finally saw Support the Girls, Yay. which is one of my instantly one of my favorite films of the year. It's you just, support it's Support the Girls, so good, so good. Uh, I I'm not, I can't even get into it because it's, I would talk too much about it. But <laughs> but I think I think it is when we think about what American independent film is, and you you associate it with you know sort of low key character study. Mm-hmm quirky comedy type of thing like this film does that in such a substantive way um in such a so full of humanity and life and very demi-esque but i'm gonna leave that there i'm also gonna leave mandy alone but i loved mandy especially on the big screen so if you can get out to see mandy which has become like this cult instant cult success and it is audio visually speaking you know it's like annihilation level like overwhelming just try to do it because it's awesome um so i'm gonna leave those behind but i'm not doing those even though i just said a bunch of stuff about them (laughs) but i did want to do two recommend two things one i wanted to quickly recommend um the new podcast halloween unmasked which was produced by the ringer and some other uh folks um it is hosted by amy nicholson who is great critic and and uh you know pal she wrote for keith back in uproxx days and she's got something going for me on musings that's going to run at the end of october terrific critic uh but she hosts and it, it, it just gives you this wonderful context for this movie that came out of nowhere and just changed horror filmmaking forever it's six episodes long you know they're all pretty digestible episodes they're probably about 45 minutes a piece. Um, they're they're spackled with interviews with Carpenter and with Jamie Lee Curtis and you know a lot of the other important collaborators of that film. And they're just illuminated by Amy's you know insight and scholarship and passion. And it's just a, it's a treat. So so uh, it. it's Second very it. much like you 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 must remember this. Of course, it's similar to that, but focused on Halloween. Come on, <laughs> it's great. Uh, so so I, I can recommend that. And then the other thing I wanted to recommend, uh, again, quite accessible, is a movie called Private Life, mm-hmm. which is the new film by Tamara Jenkins. It is on Netflix. I haven't seen 
Roma yet. So, but of the Netflix, it is the best original Netflix film I've seen. It's um, uh, excuse me, you still haven't watched All the Boys I've Loved Before. Okay, I have to see that too. So, <laughs> there's, there's how many of the Mr. Gaps. Adam Sandler's films have you seen? On the uh, I saw Meyerowitz stories, which was which, which, oh, yeah, which okay, was my favorite, fine. which is my favorite fine. before <laughs> Private Life. So, in any case, this is the new film by Tamara Jenkins, who's only done three features in her career. She made Slums of Beverly Hills in 1998. She did The Savages in 2007, and she's done this now. It's it's another tale about, it's another film about family. It, it is another comedy drama that's it's full of you know a lot of serious stuff and a lot of funny stuff. And and she's really good at both. This is a movie about a couple played by Paul Giamatti and the great Catherine Hahn, who are um, in their 40s, are trying to have a kid and are having a lot of problems biologically making that happen. And so they're trying to hedge their bets, which is part of the the comedy of the film in the sense that they're trying to go for um, various medical treatments in vitro fertilization, uh, you know, egg donation. There's a lot of things going on in that department. And it gets an incredible detail about that. And then they're also on the side trying to go for an adoption as well. So there's a very funny scene where, where Paul Giamatti is hustling around the house to hide all the fertility medicine that, that, that she's taking. So that's, that's, that's good, good stuff. It's a movie that gets into, as I said, all of these details about, these procedures and how taxing they are and how emotionally draining they are but ultimately it is a film about a marriage and about a marriage that seems to be missing something and and the something that is missing they determine is a child and that's going to fill in whatever that missing thing is and 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 uh where, where the film winds up at the end of this odyssey is just so perfect i can't it's got the best kind of denouement I've seen in a really long time. Tamara Jenkins just finds a perfect ending for the movie. I loved it. It's it's long. It's a it's a little over 120 minutes, but uh, quite engrossing and um, full of humanity and, and humor. So uh, I, I I dig it. Private Life. It's on Netflix. Extremely easy to find. Yeah, so. I'm I'm looking forward to having some time to to watch it. I I love Catherine Hahn. So yeah, mm-hmm. she she gets to get when she gets like steamed up in this movie. She's so funny. She just has that ability to just to drop all sorts of profanity and, and she, she does, she gets upset in uh, very interesting ways. Um, so I, I, I dug it. Keith, what about you? Oh, for, for various articles, I was watching a lot of horror remakes from the 2000s for a piece I did for The <laughs> Ringer. And, and, and So you're going to recommend all of them? No, I, can, I, can, I can't really, I mean, the ones, the ones I re, I, I watched a new, I was hoping to find some really pleasant surprises. Like I thought I'd be blown away by Kimberly Pierce's Carrie remake, and it's not bad. It's mm-hmm. okay, you know. So I don't have a whole lot there. And Did I, you ever see the other Carrie remake, Carrie, the Rage Carrie too? Yeah, that's, that that's actually pretty good. Yeah, but that's a sequel. I mean, that's a direct that's true. sequel. That's true. It's got, it's, yeah, but and then I watched a lot of John Carpenter films for a couple other things, and you know, there's fantastic stuff there. But I'm not going to surprise anyone there. So I, I got I two. Keith likes a John Carpenter. Film? I know. No kidding. <laughs> I got, I got two quick ones. One is Cruise, which I can't really recommend objectively. It's our pal Robert Siegel, who uh, we worked with at The Onion, and, and um, he he wrote The Wrestler. He wrote and directed Big Fan. Uh, you know, he's he's been, he's been around. This is his second directorial effort, and it's, I think it's a really fun '80s uh, n- nostalgic '80s thing, kind of kind of in the mold of uh, John Sayles' Baby It's You, kind of a wrong side of the tracks romance in some ways. And you know, it, it didn't get that much of a theatrical release, but it's readily available on uh, on your, your streaming services. I think the other thing was, the other thing I got to do recently is a Redford deep dive, and 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 I guess the one that that I knew was I enjoyed, but I forgot how much I enjoyed is Sneakers. This 1992 mm, yeah. um, sort of crime slash spy film he did in which he plays a sort of late 60s proto-hacker who has had to go on underground for his anti-government activities, who's, and who now runs a security firm, like checking the security on, on banks. So, you know, another parallel mm-hmm. there. And um, it's just this, you know, it's just really light on its feet, you know, spy thriller that comes from a particular moment in time. It's that it was released in 1992, and there's all these things about how the Cold War is over. Maybe the Russians are our friend now. Like it's a movie <laughs> that could not have been made just a few years later. It's got this great supporting cast, like Sidney Poitier. His team is Sidney Poitier, is David Strathairn, River Phoenix, Dan Aykroyd, Mary McDonnell is a great supporting role. Stephen Tobolowsky is one of his best supporting roles. I mean, it's really just top to bottom fun line on its feet stuff. But it's also, as, as Scott and I have discussed off mic, but it's like weirdly prescient. It, it is oh, all God. about how people who have access to information 
will have power. You know, if not now, then you know next year. It gets really uh, specific too. It's yeah. incredible. How... Shutting down power grids, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Changing oh flight God. plans. Yeah, and it, it's like, oh, well, you knew what was coming. So it's uh, directed by Phil Alden Robinson, who did uh, Field of Dreams. He's got, he's got a pretty good track record too. So if you haven't seen Sneakers, hey, see Sneakers. It's good. It is good. Yeah. I, I can kind of double up on the cruise recommendation, which is so movie crazy too. It's mm-hmm. got. I mean, you mentioned Baby It's You, but but also you know Diner and Risky Business, and uh, I mean it's a movie that really wears its uh, influences very out. <laughs> you know, watch the film what he had in mind making it my favorite thing also is how specific the period details are like the main character and his pals their scam is stealing car radios and selling them <laughs> to like a sleazy video store owner which is just so, such a yeah. only takes place in a you know yeah. only only you yeah know, those, only... Types of, those types of radios too that you can just kind of just scoop right out of yeah the, yeah that, that's yeah, like an it. interesting movie Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out October 30th and November 6th. Genevieve, what's on the docket? Bradley Cooper's debut as an actor-director, A Star is Born, is the fourth film to bear that title, in the latest evolution of a parable of rising and falling fame that's been around in different incarnations since the 1930s. Like its direct predecessor, the 1976 version starring Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson, Cooper's version shifts the action from its original Hollywood milieu to the world of music, but it also functions in many ways as a Hollywood musical, which is both the setting and the form taken by George Cooper's 1954 version starring Judy Garland as the ascendant star to James Mason's fading matinee idol. Given that, it's Cooper's Star is Born that we'll be looking at in tandem with the newest version starring Cooper alongside Lady Gaga in the Judy Garland role to see how the story changes with its time, setting, and lead actress, and to consider what's made this particular narrative endure over the decades. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Old Man and the Gun, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, you can find my work at the culture section at vox.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias and you can find my work at uh, NPR at the New York Times, at Washington Post, and other fine outlets. I also am the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog, which this month uh, features another, our second round of produced and abandoned essays inspired by the classic National Society of Film Critics uh, anthology book, Produced and Abandoned, in which uh, uh, films that were dropped by the studio but, but have a tremendous amount of uh, value to them, uh, and uh, this this month's contributors are such esteemed film critics as Amy Nicholson, the aforementioned Amy Nicholson, April Wolf, Bill Gobiri, and uh, Joshua Rothkoff. So that's a good lineup. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm getting get, get the, cre- the cream critics. of the crop, mm-hmm. right? And, and being able to write about, always like to, to allow people to write about those hidden gems. They feel. What are some passion. of the films? Uh, Amy Nicholson's on Alpha Dog. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty interesting and i've got in uh, bilga's on black hat okay and uh josh rothkoff is on prince of darkness right, no, nice yeah. yeah so uh look forward to that keith what about you oh i'm a freelance writer i'm all over the place you can find me at the ringer you can find me at vulture you can find me at the verge um rolling stone occasionally you know and uh, i'm on twitter at kfips 3000 i collect my clips at keithphipps.com and uh yeah you can find our absent co-host tasha robinson if Catch her. You can find her <laughs> at The Verge, where she runs the film and TV coverage, and on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. And thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space in her home base, Genevieve Kosky's apartment. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. And love, I can find it again In someone sitting close In the flashes of sin There are other ways I used to think to find my way around The wood and the smell and the word of farewell
that I always had to sound. 